I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. I'll remind us a little bit of the context here. Uh, You'll remember that uh, Jesus has called Levi, or Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And uh, Levi has left behind his crooked ways And the very first thing Levi does is throw a great feast in honor of the Lord Jesus. And he invites fellow tax collectors and sinners to come and to to rub shoulders with Jesus. And it's in that context that Jesus is asked a question about fasting. Uh, Before we read our passage for this morning, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray together. Lord, I, uh, I do not have the power to transform minds or change hearts, but Lord, you do. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and work through this ordinary means of the teaching and proclamation of your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds to understand this passage and transform us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to discern the difference between empty religion and a real relationship with you. Help us to see the the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in this passage as the, the great bridegroom of his people. And this we ask in his name, and together we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Well, so far Luke has told us a lot about the identity of Jesus Christ. We've seen him as the son of David. Uh, We've seen him proclaimed as the savior of the world by the angels. Uh, We've seen him as the son of God most high. We've we've seen him as a true man who who grew in stature and, and wisdom and in favor with God. We've seen him as the the second Adam who has come to undo what the first Adam did 
and to do what the first Adam failed to do. We've we've seen him as the the spirit-anointed Christ who has come to proclaim good news to, to needy, captive, and blind sinners, to open blind eyes. We've seen him as the one who has the, the power to drive back the forces of darkness and to heal our broken bodies. And today we see him as the bridegroom of his people. Jesus Christ is the great bridegroom of his church. And as we think about this idea today, I think there are at least three implications for our lives that we want to think about together this morning. Three, uh, three ways that this passage ought to shape our lives in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom of his people. And the very first thing I want to say to us from this passage today is that we ought to celebrate the bridegroom. Look again at verses 33 through 34. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is facing a series of criticism. In verse 29, the Pharisees and the scribes accused Jesus of blaspheming when he uh, proclaimed that the sins of the paralytic were forgiven. And then in verse 30, they accused Jesus of being guilty by association because he spent his time with tax collectors and sinners. And now in verse 33, he's asked this question about fasting. Jesus, why is it that we fast while you and your disciples feast? It's as though everything Jesus does uh, sparks a controversy with these folks because it's as though everything Jesus does bucks the religious tradition, uh, traditions of the day. And fasting for the Pharisees had become a badge of spiritual honor. In addition to praying and giving of alms to, to the poor, fasting had become a way of of showing publicly just how spiritual and religious you were. You know, there were those believers who, according to uh, God's word, according to the book of Leviticus, fasted once a year in preparation for the Day of Atonement. But if you were, if you were super spiritual, then you fasted every week, perhaps even twice a week, as the Pharisees did. They were the really spiritual folks who knew how to please God. So while fasting was a biblical and, and God-honoring practice, it had been distorted into a, a, a religious rite of uh, self-righteousness. So for example, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story, the Pharisee and the tax collector who are at the temple and the, the Pharisee is thanking God, but really he's congratulating himself, patting himself on the back. Thank you, God, that I am not like that filthy tax collector over there. I pray, I give to the poor, and I fast twice a week. 
And then off in the distance, there is that uh, sinful tax collector. And he can't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but instead all he can do is beat his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so fasting was, it was a biblical practice. And Jesus never said there was anything wrong with fasting. He fasted himself at times. But Jesus rejected outright fasting as a meritorious spiritual badge of honor. And and furthermore, he, he rejected the Pharisees adding to the law of God and their demands to practice fasting when God's word didn't command it. I just said a minute ago, the only fast that was required by God's word was an annual fast around the time of the Day of Atonement prescribed in the book of Leviticus. So it had gone from an annual fast observed by the people of God to prepare for this important day to something that was expected of anyone who wanted to be considered extremely spiritual or extremely religious. Now, of course, fasting could be practiced at other times. But the important thing to keep in mind was that it was a voluntary practice. And so when we look at scripture, we see fasting sometimes as an expression of mourning. We sometimes see fasting as an expression of repentance. And we often see it, and we see it here in this passage, as an expression of love and longing for God. It was a voluntary and tangible way of showing love and devotion for God, but but the people had distorted it into this spiritual badge of honor. And this wasn't a new problem. It was something that Isaiah addressed all the way back in, in Isaiah 58, verse 3, when he said that people were fasting for their own pleasures, for their own delight, for their own ends. Isaiah was saying that they were fasting to put the light on themselves, to put the spotlight on themselves, to say, look at, how, look at how righteous I am. Look at how religious I am. And so they were fasting really to put on a show. And this is why repeatedly in the prophets, they denounced this superficial, self-righteous form of fasting. And so that sets up this conflict here in Luke chapter 5. Many in Israel had turned fasting into this superficial display of spirituality instead of a sincere way of expressing love and heartfelt devotion and longing for God. And so when they saw Jesus and his disciples feasting, instead of fasting, they took took offense, particularly the Pharisees and scribes who had confused true religion with sterile, uh, stiff, superficial religiosity. For them, uh, religion was about denial and not delight. It was about fasting and, and not feasting. And so they confront the Lord Jesus. Jesus, we fast, you and your disciples feast. Give an answer for yourself. Explain yourself, Jesus. And like a good rabbi, what does Jesus do? He answers their question with a question. Look at verses 34 through 35. So can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now at a superficial glance, 
quick glance, it's, it, it, it's almost like Jesus evades their question. Uh, we're asking a question about fasting, and you bring up a, a bridegroom and a wedding feast. What are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? Answer the question. Well, when we actually read this closely, we'll find that Jesus' answer is profoundly biblical. Uh, just before this, he had, uh, he had revealed himself, announced himself as the great physician who has come to heal the sick, to take care of, of sinners. And now he reveals himself as the great bridegroom of his people. And he's saying when the bridegroom is present, the wedding guests must feast, not fast. Now to really appreciate the, the significance the, the weight of what Jesus is saying here, we, we need to see how this theme, it, it goes throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we'll find this theme. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 22, Jesus likens his kingdom to a great wedding banquet. And, and servants are sent out to the highways and the byways to invite others to come. Come and, and join in this festal festal gathering. Come and celebrate with the king. Come and join with Christ in this wedding feast. But connected to Jesus identifying himself as the bridegroom is the, the glorious biblical truth that God is the bridegroom of his people. That God has taken to himself a people to be his beloved. And it is, it is a theme we find from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees, I think, with their understanding, their knowledge of the Old Testament, they would have perhaps had a better understanding of what Jesus was saying here than we do today. Because what Jesus is saying here is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, they would have grasped the significance of what Jesus was claiming here. And so, for example, Isaiah 54, verse 5. Isaiah says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. The Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all that is, the Holy One of Israel, he is your husband. He is the one who has, who has wed to himself his people. Again, Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. You shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Just imagine the, the rejoicing of the bridegroom over his bride on, on the wedding day. You know, uh, the expectations are, have mounted. The day has finally come. The bride adorns herself. She beautifies herself. She prepares herself to, to meet her, bri her, her bridegroom. Uh, I remember that, I still remember the day that Kelsey and I were married, that she turned the corner and walked down the aisle. We didn't have a center aisle, so I had to wait till she walked the whole way across to come down the aisle. But when I set my eyes upon her, 
I mean, it took everything in me just to hold back tears because I was so overfilled with the joy of that moment. All I wanted to do was rejoice that she was my beautiful bride. And here, here in this passage, do you see what Isaiah is saying? You have a description of God delighting in his bride and rejoicing over her. And we need to remember that one of the reasons God gave us marriage, it is to be a picture how our Lord, our maker, and our redeemer delights and rejoices over his people. But scripture has more to say about this theme of God being the bridegroom of his people. Turn to the prophet Hosea. And we find that God's people have whored after other gods. We find that God's people have played the harlot. They have, they have committed spiritual adultery. They've gone after false idols. And yet we meet God as a faithful husband who pursues his adulterous people. In Hosea chapter 2, the Lord declares a day is coming when his adulterous people will call him the Lord my husband. And in verses 19 through 20, the Lord says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Friends, is it any wonder then when we turn to the New Testament and Paul is talking to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, that Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved his bride and loves his bride, the church. Look, listen to what he says here. He's picking up on this Old Testament theme and is saying that it is about Christ and his bride, the church. We read it during the uh, assurance of pardon, but let's read some more of these verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. And further down. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. And hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is a, an amazing statement from the Apostle Paul. You realize what he's saying there? He quotes Genesis 2 verse 24. As God is instituting marriage. That a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, this mystery, something that was once concealed, but is now revealed in God's word, this mystery, I say, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. That before the fall, God designed marriage to be a picture of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. That God designed marriage to be a picture of how Christ would redeem his people by coming and laying down his life for his own. And so a man leaves his parents and holds fast to his wife. And Paul says that refers to Christ in the church. Christ, the son of God, left his father in heaven 
in order to give himself up for his bride on earth and to hold fast to her. He took for himself an unworthy and unlovable bride that needed to be sanctified and cleansed, which he did by giving himself up upon the cross. And so important is this description of God being the bridegroom of his people, that the Bible ends with a great wedding feast in the new heavens and the new earth. We read some uh, passages, some verses in Revelation chapter 21, but we also see it in Revelation 19. We read about the marriage feast of the Lamb that is celebrated with worship. And so from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is teaching us that God is the husband of his people. That Christ is the the bridegroom who takes to himself an unworthy and unlovable bride and he sheds his blood to make her clean. A match has been made between Christ and his people and, and this match has been sealed with his blood. Christ left his father in heaven to come to earth, to cling to his bride, and to lay down his life for her. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news. So how, how should we respond to this good news? We respond to this marriage covenant with, with joy and delight and celebration. My friends, we, we celebrate all kinds of, of, of trivial things at times. Now, I, was, I was on the edge of my seat a few weeks ago. Josh and John McKelvey aren't here to back me up because I'm going to use a soccer illustration. Jake's here, so that's good. Um, I was on the edge of my seat because the team that I've loved for years finally had a chance of, of winning the English Premier League. And, uh, you know, they flopped. That's what they do every time. But I would have celebrated it. I would have been thrilled. I would have, I would have rejoiced that they finally won the Premier League. Friends, how much more should we celebrate and rejoice and be thrilled with this incredible news that Christ is the bridegroom of his people, that Christ as the bridegroom of his people left his father's side to come to earth and purchase his bride with his very own blood. And so with, with all of that as background, you see, that's why Jesus answers their question this way. By saying, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is still with them? Can, can you imagine on the day of your own, on your own wedding or the wedding of a friend, you know, you're, you're seated at the reception table and your best man or the maid of honor is next to you while everybody's feasting and celebrating, they're refusing to eat. <laughs> what would you say to them? You'd say, what are you doing? This is a day for celebration. This is a day of great joy. This is a day for feasting. See, Jesus is saying it is the privilege of those who know Christ to celebrate the bridegroom. Yes, there will be times for fasting, but there should also be times when we celebrate and, and rejoice in, in the groom. There will be times of mourning and sorrow in the Christian life, but there should also be times of jubilation and celebration. And so here we learn 
that we are to celebrate the bridegroom. My, my friends, if, if Jesus and the gospel are not worth celebrating, then nothing else is. Joy ought to characterize the bride of Christ. Joy ought to be a mark of the church of Jesus Christ. God has made a match between his people and his son, and we have been saved for the joyful praise of God's glory to rejoice in the work of our bridegroom. And so we celebrate the bridegroom, but secondly, we long for the bridegroom. That's the second thing we see in this passage. Jesus explains why his disciples rejoice, but he acknowledges that there will be a time for fasting. So he says in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus is speaking a prophetic word about himself. He is, uh, he is the bridegroom who will be taken away. Later on, he will, he will teach his disciples that, that he, he must go to Jerusalem and then be crucified upon a cross and then three days later be raised again from the dead. The language of taken away actually points to violence. Jesus is perhaps here alluding to Isaiah 53, verse 8, when Isaiah says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living because that was the mission of the bridegroom. The bridegroom came to hold fast to his bride and that meant Jesus had to lay down his life to purchase the church with his very own blood. And so he was stricken for the transgression of his people. He was taken away to be judged. He was, he was clothed as it were, in, in the transgressions of his bride. And so the gospel tells us that Christ left his father in heaven to lay down his life for his unworthy bride. He would be violently taken away and cut off so that he might cleanse his unworthy bride. But what does all of this have to do with fasting? What's the connection that Jesus is making here. Well, I think it's this. When the bridegroom is physically present, there must be feasting. And when the bridegroom is physically absent, there will be fasting. When Jesus is with his people, there will be feasting and celebration. But when Jesus is apart from his people, there will also be times for fasting. And so what about us? What what does this mean for us? Should we be feasting or fasting? That's probably the question in, in all of your minds right now. And I think the right answer is a little bit of both. I, I think we ought to be uh, celebrating the bridegroom and longing for the bridegroom. Because, of course, it's true that we, we, we ought to celebrate the fact that the bridegroom has come and he has laid down his life for us all and that Christ has promised that he would be with us until the end of the age. He is present with us by the Holy Spirit, but he is not physically present with his bride. And so there is a time for fasting as we long for and await that great marriage feast that is yet to come for God's people. And, and as we fast, it is a time for us to cultivate a longing for Christ. Christ. 
That is really what fasting is all about. It's not a spiritual badge of honor. It is a way to express spiritual hunger and longing and dependence on God. It is a voluntary act that that cultivates and expresses love and longing for the Lord. And so it is to abstain from, from food or perhaps other things in order to cultivate a longing for the bridegroom. You see, fasting has has a way of of showing us how much we need the Lord Jesus. It it has a way of of showing us that that Christ is more satisfying than anything this world can offer to us. But if our longing for him diminishes, if we are preoccupied with the things of this world, God gives us something like fasting in order to to help us along the way. And so to grow and our longing for Christ, while while he is not physically with us, we may fast. And it may be something other than food, but we fast to cultivate love and longing for Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we get more excited about sports than we do about salvation... Uh, when we celebrate more the things of this world than we celebrate knowing and being with Christ forever, then we have a problem. We have a very serious problem on our hands. And fasting is one way to cultivate a longing for Christ, a longing to be with him and feast. Some of you know I, I I love hiking. I love backpacking and going camping. I don't do it that often anymore. I used to do it a lot when I was younger. But I love, I love to be outside hiking. I love to be on the trail. I love, I love the scenery. I love the beauty of God's creation. I, I love the challenge of a difficult hike. And when I am not uh, out camping for a long period of time, after a year, I, I long for it. I desire to get back out and spend a few days in, in the woods. But I long so much more <laughs> To be in the presence of our bridegroom. I I long so much more to see him not with the eyes of faith but with the eyes of sight. And to be seated at his table and to be fed by him at that marriage supper of the lamb. I think a question that we should ask ourselves in light of what Jesus is saying is there. Are there things in my life or is there something in my life that is hindering me from longing more for Christ? Am I delighting more in the pleasures of this world than in, than in the pleasure of, of belonging to Christ? Then, then let me say that fasting is one thing you could do to refocus your attention on what matters most in this life. It is one way God and allows us to, to check our desires and to fix them again afresh upon Christ, who is our joy and is our satisfaction. And it is also, we see, that it is also a way of expressing our anticipation of the coming feast that awaits the people of God. A day is coming, dear friends, when you and I will see the bridegroom with the eyes of sight, and on that day, fasting will be no more. We will belong to Christ, we will be with Christ, we will feast with Christ, and we will worship Christ for all eternity. And our joy will be complete. But until then, 
Our longing should be to be with Christ, not for the things of this world. You know, for the Christian, Christ's physical absence should actually cause us to long for him more, not less. When I was uh, away with, with Dave at General Assembly a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, I couldn't wait to get back and, and be with my family. Nothing against you, Dave. I loved being with Dave during the week, and I look forward to General Assembly. I'm grateful that I can go. But by the end of the week, I am just longing to be with my wife and daughter. You know, the drive back at times felt like an eternity because I just wanted to be in their presence. And friends, that's how it ought to be in the Christian life. The physical absence of Jesus shouldn't cause us to long for him less. It should heighten our longing to be in his presence, to see him face to face, to be with him and his people around the table forever. And so, friends, we need, to, we need to keep this in mind that fasting is a way to cultivate longing for Christ and it is a way to look forward to, uh, to the feast that awaits the people of God at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we celebrate the bridegroom, we long for the bridegroom, and then third, we, we drink the new wine offered by the bridegroom. That's a, another way of saying we abstain from self-righteousness to receive the righteousness that Christ offers to us. Look at verses 36 through 39. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts his new wine puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. In these verses, Jesus exposes the problem of the question that is being posed to him. The problem is not with fasting. The problem is with man's worn-out attempts to be self-righteous. The problem is not with the Old Testament, dear friends. The problem is with distortions of the Word of God. The problem is with adding to the Word of God. Jesus didn't come to patch up a worn-out legalism. The problem wasn't with biblical religion. It was with man-made religion. The problem was with man's adding to the word of God and then developing from that a, a man-made religion. The Bible, as we said, required an annual fast and encouraged voluntary fasting other, at other occasions. But the Pharisees had distorted fasting into this badge of spiritual honor to be weared in front of the public. And it was all a part of this, this man-made religion that paid lip service to God's grace, but at the end of the day was about being good enough for God. The focus was, was man-centered and not, not God-centered. It was more about what we do for God instead of what God does for us. And so Jesus comes and he says, out with the old, in with the new. Man's worn-out ways 
of trying to be good enough will never work. And so Jesus gives these illustrations. He says that a new unshrunk cloth sewn onto an old garment will not only ruin the new cloth, but it will also not fit or match the old. You cannot cut up pieces of Jesus and his teaching and try to patch it onto a man-made religion. You you cannot put the new garment of, of Christ's gospel onto the message of self-righteous, pharisaical religion. Likewise, if you put new wine into an old and stretched wineskin, that new wine, it will ferment, it will expand, and that brittle, old, stretched-out wineskin will burst, and uh, the wine and the wineskin will both be, be ruined. The good news of forgiveness and joy through, through faith in Christ will not fit into old, stretched-out, man-made religions. You see, Jesus is not a, a patch that you can put on the garment of your self-righteousness. We, we don't try to uh, sew Jesus onto our own efforts in order to be good enough for God. Jesus has come to to give us a righteousness that is not our own, but one that he possesses. And we cannot gain this righteousness by our fasting or our almsgiving or our our prayer lives. This righteousness, Jesus is saying, is a gift that is received when you come to me by faith with a repentant heart. You come to Christ, he, he clothes his bride with the the garments of of his righteousness. And so we are not to live according to man's worn out ways of trying to be good enough for God. We're to live uh, understanding that nothing that we do as sinners could ever achieve or merit or, or earn the forgiveness and the righteousness that we need. The only way we can be right with God is by trusting in the bridegroom who has left his father's side in heaven to come and cling to his bride and lay down his life to take away her sins. But you see, sadly, this is is the sting at the end of this parable in verse 39. Jesus says, some people are content with the old wine. And we might be misled here because we often think the old wine is better than the new, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying they won't even try the new because they say the old is good enough. Their old, worn-out, self-righteous ways, they will not leave them behind to come to Jesus. So you hear what Jesus is saying to these men? It's profoundly tragic. You you men are so committed to your self-righteous ways that you will not come to me in humble faith and receive the forgiveness and the righteousness that you need. You think your worn out legalism is enough. But I'm telling you here today, it's not. Jesus has come to offer something better than our worn out and brittle attempts to be good enough for God. Jesus says the bridegroom of his people has has left his father from heaven, has come down as the bridegroom of his people, holding fast to his bride, shedding his own blood to cleanse us and atone for our sins. And so when we come to him by faith, 
Our sins are forgiven and we receive the righteous robes of of his salvation. And this isn't, Jesus is saying, this isn't a a message that you you can patch on to your own works. It's not a message that you can uh, bottle up in the wineskin of your self-righteousness. This is a message that you receive by faith with a repentant heart. Jesus has come into this world to give his people a righteousness that's not found in legalism. It's not found in, in man's attempts to be good enough for God, but through faith in the bridegroom. And so friends, if, I'll, end, I'll end with this. If you are, if you are drinking the, the sour wine of self-righteousness, Jesus in this passage offers to every single one of us today the sweet wine of salvation. Come, come to me by faith and I will clothe you in the garments of my salvation. That's Jesus' invitation to every one of us here today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this gospel truth that Christ is the bridegroom of his people. Help us to celebrate what he has done for us in the gospel and to, to long for the completion of his work as our mediator and savior when he will come again to usher in his kingdom in its fullness. And he will call all those who have trusted in him to come and sit at his table where there will be celebration and worship forever. Until that day, Lord, let us, let us celebrate what Christ has already achieved for us. And let us long more and more for the coming of our bridegroom. Until then, Lord, keep us faithful. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.